Hello and welcome to Byline Radio. This is What the Papers Don't Say with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, the hell on earth that is the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, but which President Zelensky is refusing to give up despite calls for a surrender by Russia. We'll be talking to our regular correspondent in Kiev, Denis Ganja, and in the UK, Sam Bright from Byline Times. Later, is it time for an independent football regulator? We'll be joined by Conservative MP Damien Collins and an apology you might have missed by Jeremy Clarkson in the Sunday Times. Author Alex Renton, who has written about his own family's historical involvement in the slave trade, took Clarkson to task for a form of slavery denialism and succeeded in eventually getting the Sunday Times to say sorry. We'll have the full story a little bit later on. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio is part of Byline Times. We're funded by ordinary people like you. There's no oligarch behind us, no wealthy proprietor pulling the strings or corporate interest telling us what to say. It's ordinary subscribers to the Byline Times, people like you, who make it all possible. So if you can afford to, please head over to our website, bylinetimes.com, and take out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll get a fantastic monthly newspaper. You'll also be supporting that news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, and helping to fund the Byline Times podcast, on which Byline Radio, this programme that you're listening to now, is rebroadcast, Byline TV and Byline Radio as well. And we'd also welcome your contributions as well. If you're listening on the phone, I don't think this works on a laptop or on a PC, but if you're listening on the phone in the bottom left hand, you'll see a little microphone icon. And if you've got something sensible to contribute or a question to ask, by all means, go ahead, tap that to request access, and we'll let you on to have a chat between now and one. First, the situation in Ukraine. Denis Gansha is a regular contributor to Byline Radio. He's the Ukrainian youth delegate to the United Nations. He serves at the President Youth Affairs Council and is also a founder of the NGO Public Diplomacy Platform. We're going to join him in Kyiv in just a moment and also hear from the Chief Investigations Editor of the Byline Times, Sam Bright. And the situation now in Ukraine is pretty desperate, but... The president, Zelensky, has refused to wave the white flag in the besieged city of Mariupol, scene of the heaviest fighting in the war, scene of a three-week bombardment by Russian forces. One survivor has called it hell on earth, and the reports that people are so hungry that they're having to kill stray dogs for food. A new curfew has been announced as well in the capital city of Kiev, from where Denis Gansha joins us now. Hello, Denis. Welcome along. Yeah, it's uh, nice to be able to talk to you. I'm really happy to have our regular chats. So let's get right to the situation here. It's very nice that you mentioned Mariupol because, unfortunately, we can't receive the direct news from here. But what we are hearing that the first people, uh, the first probably 10,000 people they have left in their private cars, the city, uh, they took a very big risk by doing this. And the situation there, it's such a catastrophe that you can't even imagine this because what Russians are doing there to the Russian-speaking people, because Mariupol is probably one of... It was really at some point before the uh, full-scale war, the city which opposed joining EU and NATO, one of the most in the country. So it was at some point rather pro-Russian. 
but still you see what they're doing to the CE. That's really interesting, Dennis, and that's an insight that I wasn't aware aware of listening to mainstream broadcasts here in the UK. So Russia claims effectively that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. Obviously, that is strenuously denied by the Ukrainians and President Zelensky and people like you. But they have actually targeted then a city that would be one of the most pro-Russian in the country. You know, uh, the thing which I really understood during these three weeks of war, that there is one narrative that Western media is saying the wrong way. Uh, that Ukrainians are fighting for the right to be in the democratic world. But the thing is that we have been together with you for centuries. Because back in the history of the Kiev Rus, uh, the first state established on the territory of Ukraine, and the state which really created Moscow, which probably one of the biggest geopolitical mistakes in the history <laughs> at all. Uh, but the thing is that we were then fighting together with European kings. During the Cossack state, which was uh, back in 17th century, Ukrainian Cossacks were fighting together with Europeans. And the first constitution, the first democratic constitution, was created in Ukraine. And this is what is really the problem, that many Western media are saying to us that you are fighting right now for your right. No, 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 no. We have been there with you for many years. It's just Russian propaganda worked so well that it made people all around the world think that we are one nation or one country. And Mariupol is strategically very important, isn't it, for Russia? Because if it could force the surrender of the city, it would create a a corridor between these regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, which Russia invaded back in 2014. That's why they're aiming at this particular city. Uh, n- not really between Donetsk and Luhansk. It's, uh, they want to create a corridor be- between Crimea and uh, so-called Donetsk, the People's Republic, or how they call it, this terrorist state. Uh, it's just for them, um, what they're probably trying to achieve, of course, is to seize some territory so that they have some arguments on the negotiations which they are trying to do with us. Uh, but what you're seeing, uh, people, uh, whenever it is an occupied city or it is still controlled by Ukrainian army, people do not agree to this. Because what I'm hearing even from my, my relatives who are now staying in Kharkiv region and some the, some cities which are near the border, they're occupied. Uh, Russians offered there to have uh, Russian passports to Ukrainian people. And there was nearly no one who accepted this invitation. Because everybody now see the truth. Even those people who supported uh, the Russian narratives for eight years, even the pro-Russian parties in Ukraine, the people there, the MPs from there, the regional deputies, city deputies, they are leaving those parties right now. The Russians said that if people in Mariupol laid down their arms they would promise safe passage out of the city, effectively calling on the people of Mariupol to surrender. But the people of Mariupol did not surrender, despite these horrendous conditions. Why was that? Because, you know, 
how can you how can you trust someone who first of all destroyed 90% of the city believe me i have been to mariupol for several times and this city despite being so close to to the war front with the uh, russian proxy states which were established in donetsk and luhansk it was so beautiful so innovative it was really they even had some things which were the best in Ukraine. And the year before the war, it was the, uh, it, they were proclaimed the cultural capital of Ukraine. And now, then Russians destroyed the 90% of the city, and then for three weeks, they have not allowed the humanitarian support to come to the city so that people have enough food, enough water, enough, med- enough drugs. How can you trust them? It's even like how can you trust a person who first raped uh, your wife and then asking you to something like, you can't do this. It's just uh, people uh, have seen the real face of Russia. The whole world has seen the real face of Russia. It's a terrorist state. And you cannot trust it. And you are originally from the East. I know, Dennis, you've retreated at the current time to the outskirts of Kyiv, but there's been a significant bombardment of Kyiv. The city is still holding firm. But as we understand it, a new curfew has been announced in Kyiv. Yeah, Uh, I really cannot comment on this because this is done for some war tactics. Uh, But believe me, the last curfew, it has its results because... Uh, we have an issue here that uh, there are a lot of like Russian uh, paid people who are coming to the cities. Uh, they are bringing the weapons in humanitarian trucks, so they try to do some terrorist attacks, so break something. It's really important that uh, our th- local authorities are doing this stuff because it is like it's very productive. I would say. So for us to stay one more day in-house, it's okay. Dennis, stay there if you would. I'll come back to you uh, a little later on. And I want to bring in Sam Bright, the investigations editor of the Byline Times. Welcome, Sam. And it's really interesting listening to Dennis and then thinking of the comments made by Boris Johnson at the Conservative Party Spring Conference on Saturday when he compared... Ukrainian defiance in the face of Russia's invasion to the UK's decision to quit the European Union. I have to say one of the most crass comments I think I've ever heard a politician make. Yeah, exactly. And um, listening to Dennis, you understand and listening to all those we've heard on, on the news in recent weeks, you understand the gravity of the situation in Ukraine. This is literally life and death for millions of people. And yeah, Boris Johnson making making that statement is just um just takes the mick. It's infantile. Um and it's 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 ironic as well, considering the statement that was made the previous day by Jacob Rees Mogg, um, one of Boris Johnson's allies, who said at the conference that um he was glad that people weren't focusing on party gate anymore because we were back to focusing on serious politics. And then Boris Johnson goes and makes a comment about the Ukrainian war, which is anything but serious, which is completely trivial, trivial, trivializes the whole situation. Um, and I think it, I think fundamentally it undermines 
um, the reputation of, of Britain on the global stage as a serious player. And that in itself is something that betrays the very idea of what Brexit was supposed to be about, which was global Britain, which was about um, us standing as a, as, a, as a global superpower again. How has Britain responded, so far as we can tell, Sam, to what some people describe as the privatisation of the refugee crisis? Effectively, the government, once it had made its initial visa announcement for Ukrainians who had family members in the UK, it then said beyond that, the next phase would be ordinary people taking it upon themselves to welcome Ukrainian refugees who had no affiliation with this country into the UK. Have we got any up-to-date figures on how many people have accepted that challenge? Very good question, Adrian. I believe as of last week it was 100,000, but you were actually mentioning to me earlier that that might have gone up significantly, so I'll probably rely on you um, on that on that question. Um, so at least 100,000, which is um, far better than the government's um, efforts so far. Yeah, well, the, the figure that I had heard, and it's anecdotal, <laughs> was something like uh, a quarter of a million, which, if true, would be astonishingly generous of the British people. I mean, still way below what is needed and a, a, a very different response to other countries, including our neighbour Ireland, who effectively has said to people who are Ukrainian, who are fleeing the war, you can come and stay for three months and uh, I think in fact three years uh, ultimately and you simply have to register and you're eligible for work benefits and so on but uh, at an official level we haven't been that generous in the mm. UK but but individuals ordinary householders choosing to take that responsibility upon themselves albeit that the government in fairness will provide I think £350 a month mm. to people who do take in refugees like that. And I think the crucial point is that although that's very that is very good news and that shows incredible generosity and lots of people will benefit um, having fled Ukraine, the execution of that scheme and other government schemes is is crucial um, because it sounds like a very large figure and it is a very large figure. But unless those people are moved into households in in a timely fashion, which will involve the government quite heavily. Um, then it's not going to be a great benefit. It's not going to be, um, you know, we're, we're not going to have led the world if those 100,000 households can accommodate Ukrainian refugees in, say, a year's time. Um, that's not going to be any good. And frankly, the Home Office's performance so far on the family visa scheme has been has still been lacklustre. I mean, the, the government re released figures over the weekend that showed that 60,000 people had applied for the family visa scheme, and yet only nine and a half thousand people um, had been granted a visa, which is obviously a paltry sum compared to plenty of countries, particularly in Eastern Europe and even in um, Germany and, and Central Europe. Um, so the government really uh, still is facing a crisis, even if the, the media's lens has been turned elsewhere in the past few days. Mm. Uh, so one question on the questionnaire that had to be filled in i think this was someone looking to apply for a uk visa which asked a woman with her child did she have her her husband's permission to, to leave ukraine i mean when we talk about crassness that is that's remarkable i mean clearly if a child is leaving a country under normal circumstances you might be 
you might want to make sure that the other parent has given permission. But in these circumstances, it, it seems insensitive to say the least. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, I think talking about insensitivity, um, I think Boris Johnson's comments are quite illuminating in, in, in some respect and, you know, attempting to rewrite history. In the, if you listen carefully to what he says about comparing Brexit and the Ukraine war, he says that um, I don't believe for one minute that people wanted to leave the European Union because of uh, immigration, because they were hostile towards immigrants. Um, and if that was the case, then why did the Vote Leave campaign talk so much about immigrants? I mean, he's, he's sort of, you know, he's engaged in a different form of history than the one that he's writing at the minute. And it's obviously been shown now that there is a great amount of sympathy and I think instinctive generosity of the, of the British people towards immigrants. Um, and it is a great failure um, and a great um, f- form of immorality that Boris Johnson played to our worst instincts on immigration when over the past few years, if you would have picked his um, pro-EU letter rather than his anti-EU letter when he was making his decision as to which campaign to back, he could have been making the case for a more compassionate approach to immigration and refugees and asylum. And in fact, Boris Johnson has been the one who's been driving um, this, form of, this form of toxic politics for the past few years. And it's, it's deeply ironic that he's making those statements now. I want to bring uh, Dennis back in, in Kiev. And Dennis, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, said that something like 3.3 million Ukrainians have so far gone abroad as refugees following the, the invasion by Russia. Something like 7 million Ukrainians have been displaced within the borders of the country. It, it just underlines, I suppose, the scale of this tragedy and the, the scale of the job to rebuild Ukraine eventually when, as I think most reasonable people hope, the, the Russians are expelled. So, uh, of course, it's true information probably. And uh, I do think that, of course, the number is really higher because, uh, like, I am personally right now an internally displaced person because I left Kharkiv. Uh, however, uh, there is one interesting number that no one uh, is really, except for Ukraine, is saying on. More than 200,000 men come back to Ukraine, even if they were living abroad uh, for many years to join the fight, to join uh, the help. And of course, a lot of those people who have fled, these are mostly women uh, who are, uh, have gone to Europe to earn some money so as to make sure that their families uh, have enough money, that their uh, husbands, brothers uh, have enough money to stay on here. Uh, in case of rebuilding, of course, we do need to understand that uh, all the money that uh, were frozen on the accounts of Russian oligarchs and Russian system, uh, the best idea is, of course, to transfer this money direct to Ukraine, I think, because uh, there is no way that Russia will agree to pay us directly because this is the Putin's regime, they're always lying, but this will be the best option for us. 
And how has it been in Kiev over the weekend, Dennis? We're aware, obviously, of uh, sporadic bombardments by the Russian invaders. Has, has it been a, a city where you've been able to do anything other than shelter? So, you know, we are living from alarm to alarm uh, because, like, uh, sometimes it's 10 times per day that uh, the officials are announcing that there will be, that there is a airstrike alarm. So please go to the shelters. But in other cases, you're just able to do your work uh, and you continue doing what you need to do. And most of people risk a lot, believe me, especially our emergency services, our medical system. It's working even under bombardments. And these are the people who have the biggest courage, of course. Uh, the Russians are trying to destroy the city, of course, because just today they have destroyed one of the biggest shopping malls in Kiev, which was built just a year ago. So this is what they're doing. They're just trying to destroy as much as they can so that to ensure that Ukraine will not rise up. But of course we will. Really appreciate you joining us today, Dennis. Thank you very much indeed. Really good to hear from you and our solidarity and support for you. And please stay safe. We'll, we'll catch up with you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Dennis Gansher speaking to us on Byline Radio in Kiev. And thanks also to Sam Bright, the Byline Times investigations editor. My name's Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to Byline Radio, which is funded by ordinary people subscribing to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. If you want to take out a subscription, go over to our website, our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find details of how to subscribe. And as well as getting the paper, you'll be supporting Byline Radio, which is where we're broadcasting now, and the Byline Times podcast, which is where you may be catching up on Byline Radio, because after we've done every episode, we've put out uh, an edition via the Byline Times podcast, which I know gets many, many thousands of listeners. I want to welcome now Damien Collins. Damien is the MP for Folkestone and Hythe. He's also the chair on the Joint Select Committee on the Online Safety Bill. Damien was also a key member for many years of the Department for Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. And in that role, played a, a very important part in bringing forward the idea of greater football supporter representation. And the fan-led review, led by his former colleague Tracy Crouch, former Conservative MP, her fan-led review suggested that we should have an independent regulator for football. Now, one right-wing think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs, has decided that... We don't need an independent regulator. They put out their report today. But if Damien Collins just wants to uh, join us now, we'll try and get his latest thoughts on this. He's, Damien's listed there as a listener, but he's not quite with us yet. Damien, request a microphone and we'll let you in. We'll speak to Damien in just a moment. We are a little early for him, in fairness. So uh, we will speak to Damien Collins in, in just a moment. Uh, Sam, you're a football fan. What do you make of the idea of an independent regulator? It's very contentious. Not everybody thinks it's a good idea. And it's not only right-wing think tanks like the Institute of Economic Affairs who think it's a bad idea. No, I think, I think it's a, a good idea. Um, I think it's clear that if problems haven't been created recently by lack of reg regulation, that they will certainly be coming down the track. I know you've written in the past, Adrian, about... Um, a real lack of 
oversight over uh, who can be appointed owners of clubs and that has run um, lots of particularly smaller clubs into into trouble. And, um, you know, with the onset of the idea of the um, the European Super League, I think there is a genuine and justified concern that football is going to turn into a bit of a Wild West whereby the clubs with all the spending power and the ownership of oligarchs, which is obviously very topical at the moment, that they will be able to uh, ride roughshod over um, the smaller clubs and um, I think violate the principles that, that football... Um, not necessarily that it was founded on, but that, it, that has made football great, so to speak, um, which is you know the participation of the fans and making sure it's a democratic game and one that um, is inclusive of all and doesn't just serve um, a few elite clubs. Really, um, what's what's your attitude on it, Adrian? Uh, well, I have to say, I'm you know I'm very firmly of the view that there should be an independent regulator. I was campaigning back in the 1980s. I know that's ancient history to you, Sam, but <laughs> this was a time. This is really the the origins of my journalism. I was a football fan and I'd left university and had a boring day job. But football, it seemed to me, although there was clearly problems with hooliganism on the terraces, very real problems, and I never seek to minimise those. But there was also a breed of what I called hooligans in the boardroom and Mm. people who were trying to merge football clubs merge historic rivals like Fulham and Queen's Park Rangers or Oxford, Swindon and Reading. And it seemed to me that at that time, there was very little political interest in seeking to control football in any meaningful way, even though it's such a key part of the fabric of our national life. And we saw this recently with the calls for the creation of a Super League with the half a dozen biggest clubs in England talking with their European peers about going off and creating a league from which there would be no relegation. So a boring league, in essence, because there's no jeopardy for those big clubs, which I think is uh, makes it a rubbish concept anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... Also, you know, I support a a medium-sized championship club, West Bromwich Albion, but who have a great tradition and a great history of playing in the top division. And I think people who make those decisions at those clubs just don't understand the depth and the intensity and the feeling of football. And at at one level, of course, football is is a business and it has to operate as a business. The Football League was created essentially so that football could become professional and broke away from the Football Association in the late 19th century. So I have no problem with football being a professional sport, but it is also a sport. And that balance between business and sport, it seems to me, has become completely out of kilter. And that's why I would argue we need a regulator. Let's bring in Damien Collins now. Anyway, he's our guest on this. And Damien, as I say, is uh, well-versed in these disputes. Hi, Damien. Welcome along. You are right? Yeah, very well, thanks. Good to, be, good to be with you. Yeah, nice to speak to you. And um, Damien, I know that you are now uh, the chair of the Joint Select Committee on the Online Safety Bill. But because of your DCMS role, th- this issue of a football regulator is something that you've been absorbed by for for many years yeah and what's driven that then why why do you care about this well i remember when i was i was first elected to parliament in 2010 and i was a member of the select committee when i joined and we did a 2011 inquiry into football governance and that for me was quite an eye opener. i went on to it the committee um, I was a football fan. I had uh, interest in football, but it was a bit of an eye opener to me of the sorts of problems that exist. You know, clubs 
um, you know, clubs at the time going into uh, great financial difficulties. It was around the time of uh, the Portsmouth in particular nearly went bust. There was a situation at Leeds United where no one no one knew who the actual club owner was. Um, and over the years, we've seen repeated failures of football clubs. And each time that happens, the fans are left there to pick up the pieces if they can. Uh, and, you know, they may have concerns about an owner. There's nothing they can do about it. Um, the club isn't trading within the rules of the league and no one seems to be doing anything about it. And there is a frustration, I think, that the fans have that when things start to go quite badly wrong, no one seems to be able to intervene in, in time to save the club. Um, and I think that's where the calls for a regulator have come, just to make sure there's some independent body that the club is accountable to and that makes sure the club is you know, behaving properly and, and uh, you know, isn't spending amounts of money that are um, totally out of control. Uh, it's clear who the owner is, where the source of funds comes from, uh, and that things like the name of the club are protected, the the relationship between the club and the ground uh, are protected. Uh, that, that Basically, that if you own and run a football club, it's not. It's a recognition is not like any other business. There will always be good and bad owners, but a bad owner shouldn't fundamentally be able to completely trash the whole club. Um, they should be able to leave it uh, and the club be a going concern and still be able to play in the league and, and play at their at the appropriate level. And and I think that's where we need a regulator to make sure that these rules are being followed and that the clubs are being run in a sustainable way. And I did refer earlier, by the way, forgive me, Damien, to Tracy Crouch, is a former colleague of yours. She's yeah. Still a colleague. She's a former sports minister, yeah. but uh, continues as a Conservative MP. So my <laughs> apologies uh, to her. And Damien, uh, I, I addressed this in discussion with Sam, this question of a balance between football being a business, which I think most people accept that it is and have no problem with players earning money and with football having a, a, a quite significant commercial element to it. I think most people would say in the modern world, that's fine. But it is also a sport and sporting principles surely have to hold sway as well. So that, for example, the idea of clubs being able to protect themselves from relegation just feels unsporting. It may make business sense for them, but it feels fundamentally unsporting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think, and I think that we saw the, the tensions there over the the idea of creating the European Super League, the idea of these closed leagues, which make the clubs more valuable. But English football has always been about the the, the pyramid, you know, club promotion and relegation. You know, cl- smaller clubs getting the chance to compete at the top. You know, bigger clubs, you know, running the risk of relegation. It's what makes the Premier League so exciting. It's why the world watches it because there's much better competition between the clubs, and the threat of relegation means you know you don't have a situation where for some clubs, you know, it's the second half of the season will be a non-event because they've got no chance of winning anything and no chance of going down either. Um, and and this is the sport. And football clubs are not like any other business. And I think this is one of the the fundamental errors that the, the the think tank report you mentioned earlier makes is that we already accept that things that uh, other businesses don't accept. So there are guidelines for how much clubs can spend on players. Um, there, you know, the restrictions on merging clubs, as you said earlier on, um, the, we, the fact that the clubs can't stop promotion and relegation, that's not a decision the Premier League can make by itself, that they accept collective bargaining and for uh, broadcast money because they make more working together than they would do independently. So there are already lots of things that we've put in place. Um, you know, pe- uh, someone can't own, own more than one club, you know, quite rightly, because it might affect competition. So we already accept in sports that um, 
that these the, the, the protecting the integrity of the competition uh, is a really important part of making the sport successful and you know, these aren't just like any other business well we'll bring in a caller in a moment damien if you're all right yeah kush wants to have a chat with us but the iea and i'll Incidentally, I should say, I, w- I welcome the IEA. I saw this too late, really, to invite them for today's edition of Byline Radio, but I will invite them on for a conversation on another day. Amongst other things, criticising the idea of a football regulator, they say that it will undermine property rights, disincentivise investment, and it gives supporter organisations a veto and club decisions. And it raises the question about the representativeness of these bodies in a globalised football environment where fan bases of large clubs are no longer simply local. Now, at some level, of course, this is true, isn't it, that fan bases, let's say, of the, the major clubs are are certainly international. But I think most people would feel that if you are a supporter of Liverpool based in the UK and you attend matches at least occasionally at Anfield, that you do have more of a stake in that club than somebody perhaps in Thailand or Hong Kong who may well love that football club but doesn't quite have the same relationship with them. Well, I think that's I think that's right. Certainly, I mean, when we talk about um but when we talk about I think really football regulation and needing to make sure clubs are run in a sustainable way. We're often talking less about the big six, you know, who have the biggest global reach than other sort of more mid-sized clubs who tend to be the ones that get into trouble. And the idea of fan representation would really be through the supporters' trust. So people who are members of the supporters' trust who get the support of other members of the supporters' trust, you know, could be people that are put forward to to be board representatives. Um, but I th- the, the mistake I think the IA make here is assuming that the, the job of the regulator is to impose lots of new rules and conditions on the way clubs clubs are run. Largely what the regulator would do is make sure that a lot of the rules we've already created are actually followed. The problem football has is that there are plenty of good rules to promote clubs being run in a sustainable way, but they're not properly enforced. So the Football League, for example, has protocols saying how much a club, how, what percentage of a club's income it can spend on players' salaries. Now, the truth is the clubs spend far more than they declare. Um, they try and close the gap with soft loans from their owners for as long as they can afford it. And then you end up in a position like Derby, you know, where the club's gone into administration and may not come out. Now, a situation like that could have been avoided if the league's own financial rules were actually enforced. But they're not rigorously enforced because ultimately it's the league executive, you know, which is gets his authority from the chairman of the clubs. And the chairman of the clubs don't particularly want rigorous real-time financial reporting, which would demonstrate whether they're breaking the rules or not, because that could affect them negatively. And, and it's it's the lack of resources, the lack of power of the leagues to, to run their own rules, which allows clubs to get into difficulty. So I think the, the regulator's primary job would be to make sure the clubs obey the rules of the competitions they're trading in, that they're supposed to they're supposed to behave uh, and do. And then other things like uh, interfering in decisions. When, well, the, well, the final-ed review doesn't suggest that, that the fans should have a veto on which players are bought and sold, but the questions around you know the decision to sell the ground or move away from the ground, uh, to play in another city, to change the name of the club, to change the colours the club plays in, those are all things that the fans should be consulted on and approve. And this sort of happens informally already through the FA Council, but uh, I think this should be formed. I think there are certain things that an owner takes on when they buy a football club that should be protected. And I think the regulator can do that. Um, I mean, finally, it's on owners, on ownership as well. You know, the, we often talk about the the owners and directors test for football clubs, a fit and proper person test. People have been questioning whether Abramovich would have been able to buy Chelsea 
uh, if that had been in place. But the truth is there is no such rule. You know, we, it's talked about a lot, but the football authorities can no more stop someone buying, can't stop anyone buying a club if they're free to be a UK company director. And I think we do need a, a regulator that's got the discretionary power to look at the, the business record of a new owner um, and their track record and any offences they may have committed in the past and say, well, actually, we don't want you uh, to be a club owner. We don't think you... You, know, you pass the test. Um, Ofcom has that power with broadcasters. Ofcom can take a license off a broadcaster or stop someone gaining a license. But at the moment, um, there is no such power within football. And the regulator, as set out by Tracy Crouch's report, would have that power. And I think that's a, a reform most fans would welcome. Let's bring in uh, Kush. Hello, Kush. Welcome along to Byline Radio. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you guys doing? Yeah, nice. Go on, Kush. What's your com- comment on this? So, I'm not a... I don't live in England, nor do I, uh, but I do follow the Premier League. I'm a Bayern Munich supporter, massive Bayern Munich supporter. We do things very differently in Germany and with the 50 plus one rule. So, but I have a, uh, I have few statements to make and uh, maybe a question. Kush, Kush, sorry, let me just interrupt you there then, because there'll be some people listening to this who don't know what the 50 plus one rule is. Can I say simply is that every football club in Germany has to be owned 51% effectively by its supporters. So you, yes. won't, get, you won't get investment mm. funds owning football clubs in Germany like they do in the UK or indeed the investment arms of oil states <coughs> like German 100%. clubs. 100%. Um, basically, a club can, is 51% owned by the, the fans, which have voting power in the, in the AGMs and can uh, also have a massive say on certain issues and even uh, uh, but there are corporate companies that do have half shares in the club but no person can or a person can buy 41.9% of the shares but at the end of the day the he cannot do make decisions w- without the fan base uh, being supportive of those decisions um, now that's a brilliant model to follow, and I wish a lot more clubs around Europe, and especially in the Premier League, would follow that 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 way because it gives the fans a lot more say on how how things are run. Um, but I I get I've been listening to Damien about some things, but and I don't get one thing. It's like we have a lot of issues with Roman Abramovich and the way he has he has been operating the club and the money that has you know what has where his money has come from. And that's fine, and I I understand that. But how is that completely different from the sale of Newcastle to Saudi uh, to the Saudis when we know they are probably to a large extent worse than the Roman Abramoviches? You know, because they they recently executed eighty one individuals without trial in Saudi Arabia, and they have also they commit mass human rights atrocities not only in their country but other countries around them, like in Yemen, when it, there's a war going on. So that that's something that makes me wonder, like, how, how is the Premier League and the British government differentiating between a Roman Abramovich and a a Saudi ownership of Newcastle? And the okay, well, point- let's, Kush, let's put that to Damien. I'm sure it's not the first time he's heard that question. Is that something that a regulator, as you see it, Damien, could become? involved with 
Well, but there you see the, the in a situation like that, the, the lead is given by the government. I mean, we've established a sanctions regime on Russia and sanctioned individual business people like Roman Abramovich. I actually think if we had the regulator now, the regulator could could have played a role in administering uh, Chelsea Football Club until the new owners come in and maybe make the issues around the licensing regime for Chelsea a lot easier because I think the regulator could have performed a role as like as like a football administrator. So the question really on Newcastle would be for the football authorities would be if there's no if there's no legal bar on on a Saudi Arabian uh, investment fund or businessman buying a football club, there's nothing nothing the government's done to do that. It really would be a question for the football authorities themselves whether they they trusted the source of funds, they trusted the people buying it. But I think with Saudi Arabia, we've got to you know probably at a government level, we've got to be consistent and say you know it can't. I don't think it'd be fair to say, well, you know, we don't mind selling the, the Saudis arms, but we won't let them buy a football club. I think yeah, we've, we've got to be consistent at a at a national level. I think that's a decision that goes um, beyond the power of a football regulator. Mm. Uh, I, and I completely get that. Uh, the the other point I had to make, you were talking about the relegation and how whether, you know, with the whole Super League debacle, right? Yeah. We saw, we saw that a lot of the clubs are... We're trying to get into a closed league. Yeah. Well, uh, in regards to that, if you look at UEFA and the Champions League, new Champions League um, uh, format that's coming out in 2024, that basically states, and I'm not sure if it has completely been adopted yet, but I think it is getting to the point where it is, it will be adopted, is where there is no... So let's say you have the top right now. If you're in the top four, you go into the Champions League. Well, the new format that's coming in from 2024 was basically a coefficient base. So let's say if you were to make top four, you would automatically go to the yeah. Champions League spot. But let's say if a Manchester United or any of the top six clubs were to finish eighth, like Arsenal has, or Man U have, might finish out of the top six because of their European representation in the past historically and their coefficient, they would still make top four. And uh, from what articles I've read recently, it states that majority of the all of the top six clubs are refusing to sign a signature with the Premier League, stating that they will abide by the by the the, the status quo of, you know, based on a uh, system of, um, um, yeah, what what we do now with... Uh, yeah, the, sort of meritocracy. So, so yeah, for example, yeah, meritocracy, exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. So, That's okay, the word I'm looking just, for. Just, just to explain this again to people who may not understand football as well as you, and hopefully I do, Kush, the coefficient would mean that your past performance in European competition would be taken into account so yes. that in an expanded European Champions League, there may be an extra place for an English club. But, for example, if Manchester United finished sixth, they might qualify for a Champions League spot above, say, West Ham, who don't exactly. have such a great history in Europe, even though West Ham might have finished fifth. Fourth. Yeah, and exactly. I, mean, I think this is a really interesting point, Damien, isn't it? And uh, it may be one, ultimately. At, at the moment, my understanding, this is only a proposal from UEFA. Well, but but I, well hold on a sec, because I, I think sorry. it's a proposal. And But, of course, uh, Damien, the, the, the big clubs will favour it because it benefits them. But it's, it's surely anti-competitive. I, th I think this is a this is a big problem, and this I mean this has been on the agenda for some time now, and there's a bit of a sense that the trade off for the Super League not going ahead was that the big clubs would achieve what they wanted, which is the guarantee of European football uh, through these rule changes, and it, if you look at the um, 
Champions League now. I mean, regardless of the idea of, um, I was thinking during the Liverpool Nottingham Forest game yesterday that you know when Forest won the European Cup, they beat beat Malmo in the final. I mean, it was impossible to think of a final like that taking place today. But it would also be almost impossible to think of clubs like Stoy Bucharest or Ajax or Feyenoord winning the Champions League because they're they're um, they play in leagues that are too small, their revenues are too low, and they just cannot compete financially. And I think the, the European leagues are under huge pressure, be, you know, because they struggle to compete against the Premier League. And we're in, I think we're in this, this danger that we'll have that European football will, will become about, you know, a relatively small number of clubs and that, you know, great clubs in leagues in other European countries will become very peripheral. And I think, I think that'll be bad for European football, it'll be bad, bad for competition and uh, will benefit only a handful of clubs. Yeah. Uh, can I add on to that since, um, I I know a lot about football and I do a lot of research on it. Uh, of course, as a football fan as well, uh, Damien, you're hundred percent right on that. And uh, the but the the thing is, the Super League will go on regardless of what. Even though the idea of the Super League has fallen apart due to all the protests and the the concerns behind it, but you you're we are still seeing the Super League is still a force to be reckoned with. Because I don't know. Here's a question because you're an MP. Um, like in the, in the European Union, there is a law that states a no corporate company or corporate organization can have a monopoly, which is clearly is right now in the course of the European court, uh, European um, uh, court, right? Whether UEFA has a monopoly in um, on in Europe and the continent of Europe, right? So. Is there a similar law in the Premier League that states, or in the in England that states that uh, the Premier League does, cannot have a monopoly? Because technically, they do have a monopoly right now, right? So that could be the basis of a the top six Premier League clubs, more part of the uh, Super League, say, well, if if the European Court says that UEFA is a monopoly and they do create a the Super League if it goes through then they might just say, well, the Premier League also is a monopoly, so we have the right to jump ship. Yeah, so this is, this is, um, this is a really important point. And I think existing competition law in the UK and in the EU um, favours breakaways. Actually, I mean, because because they say so you can't, you can't, you know, a govern, even a governing body can't um, stop people doing something different, creating separate competitions, as long as a club abides by the rules of the domestic competitions it plays in. I think at the moment competition law would say there should be nothing to stop people. Um, there should be nothing to stop people um, breaking away. And indeed, on the day the Super League collapsed, um, there was a test case in Spain. Uh, in the courts there, which which would have stopped UEFA taking any preemptive, punitive action against the clubs joining the Super League, it would have we'd have to see how that would have been resolved in the courts. In the end, the case uh, case was withdrawn. But there is a there is a problem here at the moment. The the threat to clubs from breaking away and joining a Super League is really the threat of expulsion from other other competitions. But um, and the Premier League have changed their own rules as well to say uh, that there would be very punitive measures taken against any club that took part in what they call a non-sanctioned competition, a competition that probably the FA hadn't hadn't sanctioned as a legitimate competition. So there are some things that can be done. And I think we've tried to build in more of those factors. But at the moment, it's not at all clear what, what in law what, what, what could ultimately be done to, to stop something like a Super League happening if the clubs were determined to break away at any cost. 
Really interesting. Damien, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, really good to speak to you as always. And I know you're very passionate about this. Uh, one final question for you, Damien. Mm. I know there's a, a lot of uh, fevered expectation about whether Tracy Crouch, uh, whether the the government's view ultimately on whether Tracy Crouch's recommendations will become law is going to be announced anytime soon. What, what information have you got? Uh, well, I don't know if there's a, an, an immediate announcement planned. Um, the um, the government has said it wants to create an independent regulator, and um, the question will be obviously: Do they accept all of Tracy's report in full, or do they um, do they have a different view on how the regulator would work? Um, the key thing will be probably what's in the Queen's speech in, in May, at the start of the next parliamentary session, because if there's going to be new legislation, they probably have to set that out in the Queen's speech. Damien, thanks very much indeed. Uh, please spread the word on uh, Twitter. We'll be uh, podcasting this a little bit later on. Obviously, we're live now on Byline Radio and anything you can do to spread the word. I think it's really important that these issues are out. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Kush, uh, for joining in as well from Germany here on Byline Radio. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and you may be listening to this via the Byline Times podcast. After we've broadcast, that's where we get most of our listeners, or you might be one of the lucky ones listening live via Twitter Spaces on Byline Radio. Either way, please support Byline Times if you can. A fabulous monthly newspaper is yours for, oh, I think it's just 39 quid a year. But that subscription, or even better if you take out a membership, does help support Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, and our wonderful news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. In a moment, we're going to speak to Alex Renton. Alex has got a, an amazing story about an apology issued by Jeremy Clarkson over slavery. So, Alex, I know you're listening there. Just request the microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your phone and we'll get you on to speak. Uh, Sam, interesting to hear Damien there because yeah, Damien is one of those uh, I think Conservative MPs, uh, there are those, if you like, who are sort of free market. We may we may prejudicially call them free market headbangers. <laughs> Damien isn't one of those, actually. He, he's a Conservative MP who actually wants to conserve, you know, sees stuff in society that is valuable, that is worth having. I think a lot of those Conservatives haven't really found a voice at the leadership of the party in recent years. But, you know, he's not anti-business. Of course not. He's a conservative. He's pro-business, but also recognising that there is a, a particular place in our society for football. Mm, yeah, and, and for rules. I think that was really insightful. Um, I think Damien laying out the case, not just regulation in football, but regulation more widely and how it can be done sensibly and it can preserve like you say it can conserve all the things that we value in the game um and not not just let it become the wild west and allow allow um actors to tear up the rule book and act as they please and i think that's i mean it's quite radical in modern conservative party and, and it's certainly very refreshing to hear yeah and uh, i mean the, you know the, there are arguments against it perhaps Having an independent regulator might deter some investors from football, but you kind of think, who are the investors who will be deterred? You know, are they the people who risk running clubs into the ground? We've had this situation at Derby County, one of the you know one of the great clubs. I hesitate to say that as a as a support of a rival club, but one of the one of the great clubs of English football. You know, they've won a league title in my lifetime. They've got a very good fan base, but as we speak. 
there is no certainty that Derby County will exist because they've chased the dream of the Premier League, which has uh, kind of lured many people, like the mermaids on the rocks, <laughs> luring mm. the uh, luring the sailors. That lure of Premier League riches has encouraged them to spend and overspend and overspend to the point where the clubs become completely unsustainable. Mm. And I was really shocked. I, I didn't. I wasn't aware of the Champions League proposal about the coefficients, and that does seem really pernicious to me um even as a as a fan of one of the big four clubs in liverpool um i mean we we all romanticize and rightly so leicester's um victory in the premier league a few years ago and how that was representative of the sort of football that we want and yes there, there is a there is a dominance in the game whereby a lot of the leicester players that won that that title have been poached by the bigger sides but you know, even even in the case of West Ham now, really challenging for the top four in the in the past few years, it would be such a tremendous shame to disincentivize those sorts of clubs um, from from really reaching for the top honours um, and to and to make it a close shot between the big boys. Uh, I just think it would the game would lose something, um, and I think the vast majority of fans would probably agree with that. Yeah, uh, I should say, I'll ask you another question in a moment, Sam. Just to say, I know Alex Renton is listening. I'm not sure why Alex can't get on at the moment. But Alex, there should be a little microphone logo in the bottom left hand of your screen. I presume there's one in the bottom of yours, Sam, on your phone. Yeah. Yeah. So, Alex, if you press that and request access, we'll let you on. Ah, he's done it now. He's done it. I've been trying to get him to do that for five minutes or so. So uh, that's good. Alex is coming on in a moment. And I suppose it's really interesting. I just find it really instructive as a football fan and as a kind of, you know, I suppose somebody's always interested in politics and economics. Sam, you know, you actually see close up. It makes visible the workings of a particular kind of capitalism when you watch football and the way its big clubs operate at that level this is not about the free market mm. not about everybody having the chance to compete on a level playing field it's about taking control of a part of the market and mm. then shutting other people out which is actually how capitalism often works well exactly that's corporatism <laughs> it's corporatism exactly and yeah it's not a meritocracy at all and i think in order to ensure meritocracy as in all aspects of life you do need to have uh, you do need to have rules that create a level playing field it doesn't just happen of its own accord um like you say through unbridled freedom and liberty as some would like to say Sam, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you so much for joining in. Really been uh, good to hear from you today. I know you've been poorly as well, so thank you. You can read Sam's stuff at the Byline Times. There's always some great news and comment and commentary dropping at bylinetimes.com. Sam is very often behind it as our investigations editor, the man who led the way in exposing the PPE scandal. And... Uh, did you let slip your Liverpool fan, Sam? I did, I did, yeah. yeah. Until then, you were doing so well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you go. Cheers, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, Sam Bright. More from Sam to come, uh, and there will be a regular voice here on Byline Radio. Now, if you bought the Sunday Times yesterday, in the corrections and clarifications, you will have seen a tiny... Apology, And it says, I'll, I'll read this because it's so small. This is the corrections and clarifications in the Sunday Times. And when I 
read this out, you'll be astonished how small this is and how big the story is that ensues, which we're going to talk about with Alex Renton. So this is The Apology. The column, a history listen that floats my boat, the stories of British slave rescues we never hear about, by Jeremy Clarkson in February 2021, said it was reckoned that the Royal Navy's operations to end the slave trade cost more than Britain had earned from earlier slaving enterprises. We have been asked to point out that the consensus among historians is that this was not the case, and we are happy to set this on the record. So there we go. That's it. About two sentences apologising okay. for Jeremy Clarkson getting it wrong when he said that the operations by the Royal Navy to end the slave trade cost more than Britain had earned from the slave trade. Now, let's speak to Alex Renton. Alex is an author. He's written about his own family's historical connection with the slave trade, and he brought that complaint over a year ago to the Sunday Times. <laughs> How do you feel, Alex, after that? Well, it's sm small victories, I think, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> but this it, is actually a very big story. So come on, tell us all about it. Well, it is quite a big story. And I think, you know, I, I, I did it really, uh, you know, on behalf of a lot of teachers and academic historians who, who I'd spoken to who, who were very worried about you know, how history was being twisted in you know in the in the war against woke and particularly by influential right-wing uh columnists who who uh it seems there was no way of getting back to and and i think you know when someone like clarkson writes oh slavery wasn't so bad after all and you should be proud of things british the, the good bits of the slavery story um that rever reverberates in the classrooms um back uh, you know in in hate and and um historian and teachers trying to do their job being put down as lefties who hate britain as um, again i'm using clarkson's phrase so bringing this complaint over a totally ridiculous piece of uh, of economic uh, mathematics that Clarkson had researched, um, you know, seemed worth doing. And I thought it would be easy, but it turns out it was not. Uh, indeed not. So that article was written in February 2021. Here we are now in March 2022. And as well as counteracting this narrative around slavery, effectively saying Britain had a great slaving history, we did really well, and we were far more uh, apologetic about it than we ever were embroiled in it. Honest, Governor, which, of course, yeah. is complete nonsense, absolute nonsense, but nonsense beloved of right-wing commentators by Clarkson. Your story is also instructive in terms of what we discover about the reformed, supposedly reformed system of press regulation yeah. to the phone hacking scandal. Yeah, I think, I mean, that that, that really is, is the worst bit. I mean, you know, Adrian, I, I'm, I'm a journalist. You know, I, I've, I've worked for The Times and The Sunday Times. You know, I, I've got privilege. I've got access, you know, and, and I first complained about this article to a, a senior executive at the paper you know, back shortly after it was published, who said she would she, something would be done about it, uh, and then there wasn't. So I then went down, you know, the route that any ordinary reader, non-journalist, would have to take, which is a complaint to the paper. And and then and found that the paper rejected my complaint out of hand, saying that Clarkson was allowed his opinion and that his research was solid, when in fact that his research was only 
quoting another right-wing columnist who'd made the same contention. And then I had to go. So I thought, right, I'll see how this plays out. So I went to IPSO, the, the Independent Press Standards Organization, you know, the voluntary organization, which the newspapers have told us um, is, you know, is, is going to work and means we don't need legislation to regulate newspapers. But I think you can see from, you know, the, the half-assed uh, thing written in the comments column of the, uh, the uh, of the Sunday Times yesterday and the fact that Clarkson's hate-filled, uh, you know, really damaging column is still up on their website, slightly amended, that this, this regulation system doesn't work even when in a decent newspaper, and I say in quotes, like the Sunday Times is, is operating it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think of a, a parallel, and it's it's very dangerous to tread into these waters, isn't it? But it'd be, I don't know, a bit like saying in, you know, after World War Two, you know, the Germans did a fantastic job of clearing away those terrible Nazi death camps, you know, and, and they, they waged war against the people. Who, yeah. had, who had caused the extermination, the genocide of Jews and Roma and gay people and so on. It, it, it just isn't true. No, I, I don't think it's an unfair parallel. I, I, I mean, the thing that, you know, particularly you know, because of the work I've been doing with this book I've published, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, you know, who are descended from the three million uh, Africans who we enslaved and transported to the Caribbean, uh, you know, uh, and and the view there, you know, the view from many people is that is that white British history, as told to people of your and my age, you know, was deeply, deeply dishonest and wrong. You know, and it did seek to to paint uh, Britain as the good guys of the slavery uh, story, when in fact, you know, in in the among the European nations, we're just about the worst. Um, and this denialism, as it's put out, and the denialism is also a word that gets used about hi historians who try to deny the Holocaust, to say, in, it, it is, is done in, with a motive, which is to, is in the end, to tell people who have suffered in these events and want them properly acknowledged and recognised to shut up. Uh, and I think, you know, for all that people like Clarkson are, you know, uh, well, you know, a, a pub bore or our nas national treasure, however you want to look at it. The, the underlying motive is essentially promoting hate and denial of this past, which still toxifies our society today. So it is serious, this. Uh, and I think it, it, the Sunday Times did not take it seriously. Absolutely not. And uh, for the book that you've referenced, your book is called Blood legacy we've done a an in-depth interview you, with you on the byline times podcast which i would recommend yeah. people uh, search down through the the history of the podcast and look it out because it's a really fascinating story but just a, a brief resume on that alex i mean you discovered not really having much idea of your antecedents that in fact the family's wealth that you were born into kind of comfortable middle class wealth owed at least some of its history to the slave trade Yes, I, I mean, I find that my, my mother's family, I mean, it, you know, like thousands of other Brits alive today, you know, did, did very well out of uh, buying and selling Africans, uh, you know, even, can I say, breeding Africans um, uh, on plantations in Jamaica and Tobago in the 18th and 19th century. And, and I think, you know, this is part of our common history. And, and it's certainly, you know, there's a lot of 
privileged people in Britain today whose wealth and privilege does come down from that. But but the key, the key thing, but the reason I wanted to tell this story and, and go to Jamaica and Tobago to talk to people there who live on the sites where we, we carried out this these murders, um, 900 people, um, you know, was to say, you know, why why does this matter today and why should we still keep it be taking it taking it seriously? And 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 you know, and I heard and, and I'm ashamed and that I, I hadn't listened before and realised just how much racism and inequality in Britain today derives from the things that my ancestors and the British state did, did back then. Mm. Um, so that's really that's the book. And, and I think, you know, what it said to me in the end is that, you know, it, I, you have to when people like Clarkson want to excuse or belittle the impact of the three and a half million people, the 250 years of slavery industry that Britain indulged in, that when when they when they want when they want to say it, you shouldn't worry about it um, and let it's you know, it's lefty Britain haters. I quote him who who, who are the people talking about it. You, you need to call it out on behalf of the descendants of the people my ancestors enslaved. Yes. So uh, we again to fill in the gaps for people who haven't read this article, it, it, Clarkson references the Royal Navy's West Africa. Yeah. Squadron, which was founded in the early 19th century, disbanded in the 1860s, and he says, and again, this is this is not to be sniffed at. This element of his story that 2,000 Royal Navy sailors gave their lives whilst capturing 1,600 slave ships and freeing 150,000 slaves. Now, I'm sure you don't have any problem applauding those actions and saying that. Those were sacrifices that those sailors and their families undertook. But it's the bit below it, isn't it, that's I yeah. think, really offensive, which is where he says muddle-headed lefties really don't like the idea that for nearly 100 years and at vast expense, the country they hate waged easily the most morally just war of all time. Now, I don't know if he'd class you or I as a muddle-headed lefty. It probably would. <laughs> yeah, right. But the, the figures that he quotes, and I say that, you know, I, I don't seek to kind of disown that history as somebody who is, you know, British by birth. You know, that's those people were very brave and did a good thing. But it pales into comparison compared to the enslavement of millions of African people. Both of of these things can be true, that slavery was terrible and appalling and Britain was responsible for an awful lot of it, and that there were then later some decent actions by by British sailors. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the analogy you drew drew, um, uh, earlier about other nations clearing up the mess that they made through, you know, through, through... Evil policy, um, you know, it, it is quite good. But, but what, where it's, where it, this becomes offensive, not least to, I would suggest, people of African and Caribbean origin, um, is when, when Clarkson uses this made-up statistic uh, that the Royal Navy spent more money policing the slave trade than Britain ever got from all the slavery industries which includes the shipbuilding, the sugar, the gun making, you know, over 250 years, plus the, you know, the selling of 300 million, sorry, 3 million Africans. That, that, that's where it's offensive. And, and it, you know, we all know that we need a better and more balanced history that where, we, where we tell it all. 
Clarkson and I had very expensive, he went to Repton Public School, I went to Eton. We had very expensive educations about this period, which didn't tell us any any honest truths at all, um, especially on the extent of the, slave, the slavery business and, and just how much money it made. Um, the, he, I don't know why there's a lot of people, white, privileged men of his age, who are absolutely horrified by the notion that the history they were taught as little boys isn't absolutely true and i don't and they will resist and lie to protect to protect that and we have to get over this we've got to move on and be honest about our past if we're going to have a better future it seems to me alex's book is called blood legacy reckoning with a family's story of slavery and to endorse what you've said alex i've just checked on the times website and the article is still there and yes. the half asked apology hasn't been tagged on to the end of it. So you would still go to that article today and read it and not be aware that the newspaper has apologised for its writer's error. That's poor. That is poor, isn't it? And it's not what Ipso, as you said earlier, the new standards body was set up to do. I mean, I'm going to have to go back and make another complaint about it because I clearly haven't done it. And and you've got to go, why? Why? Sunday Times, decent, serious, liberal newspaper. Not, I mean, it's what, what's wrong with just putting, giving people facts straight? Blimey, I'm going to have to take a sit down after that suggestion. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, great to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. And do read his book. His book called Blood Legacy is a brilliant and very disturbing, harrowing read at times, but really essential reading, I think, for many people. And I would also say go back and listen to the podcast interview I did with that. Yeah, it was great. It was a good conversation. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I'm Adrian. You've been listening to uh, Byline Radio uh, from the Byline Times. Please take out a subscription if you can. Details at bylinetimes.com. Please spread the word. This episode will be available via podcast a little later on. Please share it with as many people as you can. And I'll see you again tomorrow at noon for more Byline Radio. Thank you. Ta-da!